Hi, welcome to Chronically Chilled on 3CR. My name is Mario. Um, I want to acknowledge the people of the Kulin Nation whose land I am recording this from. Um, so today you'll hear from Aki Nyo. Aki is a fierce advocate for the rights of people living with disabilities and chronic illness and is the Executive Director at Chronic Pain Australia, a national grassroots organisation advocating for people living with chronic pain. Naomi and I had a fabulous wide-ranging chat with Aki about the systemic barriers faced by people with chronic pain, COVID-19 and the Royal Commission, mental health, as well as the intersections of gender, sexuality and culture with disability. Aki began by explaining how they came to their advocacy work and also about the work of Chronic Pain Australia. Chronic Pain Australia has been around for about 20, almost 20 years. So we started as a small group in 2001. Um, it was just a small pain group where it was a support group and then it grew and grew and then in 2006 we became a registered health promotion charity um, with the ANCNC um, and so we are I guess like a um, fully fledged health promotion charity uh, working around breakdown of stigma associated with chronic pain, working around the understanding of what it is to live with chronic pain and uh, the reduction of barriers and the unnecessary suffering for Australians living with chronic pain. Um, I was born with a condition called necrotizing enterocolitis, which is a, I guess, a life-threatening gastrointestinal um, ish, uh, I guess, a condition where your bowels go gangrene and they rot and a lot of bad things happen. So within a, an hour or so of my birth, I needed to get surgery. Um, so I've been sick from the moment that I was born. So I've been chronically ill since the moment I was born um, and I've had a lot of ongoing issues relating to that. And um, I've also had issues with my spine. Um, I've got spinal stenosis and a spinal injury um, as a result of a bit of bad luck and some uh, violence um, with past relationships as a which has resulted in my spinal injury. Um, I've got something called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is a connective tissue disorder, which impacts a lot of my tissues and joints. So I live with a lot of chronic pain um, in a lot of areas of my body. I have mobility issues because of my spine um, and my joint issues, and I have issues with um, posture atherostatic tachycardia, which affects my blood pressure and heart rate, and I have migraines. Um, so I have a, quite a few things going on, um, and I'm in a lot of pain a lot of the time, and I take medications, and um, I manage my pain as best I can by adjusting my lifestyle and making changes to my work and having the, the correct equipment. And I guess my advocacy and the work that I do within this space is... Um, there's so much overlap with chronic pain, disability, and a lot of people that have chronic pain are disabled, and a lot of people who have disabilities have chronic pain, and I guess that has that connection in the past hasn't been made. So coming on um, to be the executive director of Chronic Pain Australia earlier this year, the the core of our work is to represent the lived experience, to not tell people what they're feeling, but to actually acknowledge that all your any and all pain is valid and your experiences are valid. And me coming on as executive director of my own lived experiences has actually um, been able to lift that profile as well because I understand what our community is going through. I understand the challenges. Um, all the stories that I read that are super heartbreaking and super challenging are things that I've gone through. So um, I think that level of being able to connect with the community that you are so passionately fighting for is such a big benefit in this aspect. Um, 
We also, every year we have a campaign at the end of July. So it's always the last week of July and it's called National Pain Week. Um, and National Pain Week is to champion the voices of people living with chronic pain. This year we did um, a theme. The theme of this year was called Faces of Pain. And that's essentially to demonstrate that anyone and everyone can live with chronic pain. You didn't have to look a certain way, act a certain way, be a certain way. You didn't have to be a certain age, a certain gender. Anyone and everyone can live with chronic pain. Um, and then we also have one thing called the National Pain Survey. So for the past few years, we've done a survey that works around and asks questions about the the whole chronic pain experience, not just the medical side, but also how does it affect your daily life? You know, what things work for you, what things don't, how's your relationship with your pharmacist, your GP, what can be better? And it's, it's quite a large survey. So we use that to inform our work, but also to strengthen the argument that, you know, there's so many barriers for people living with chronic pain. Um, there's so many barriers to overcome. And with the new regulations, uh, with medication access, it's been even more difficult. So obviously, if you're disabled and you have all of those things going on within the disability sector, and then you put chronic pain and medical, I guess, conditions and, and accessing medications and all these other barriers, it just becomes even more difficult and you're even more disadvantaged. So the work that we do with Chronic Pain Australia is to highlight and acknowledge that and try to fight to reduce those barriers as best we can, both in the media, but also um, in a political sense with um, the work that we do in, I guess, that political space and that advocacy space and that activism space. Um, so doing as much as we can in that space as possible for a small organisation. <laughs> it sounds like you're doing a lot for, for such a small organisation. <laughs> yeah. <Yep. laughs> um, Naomi, I know you had a question in regards to all the medication stuff. So Yeah. Um, so just in relation to what you were saying about the, the changes in law, um, regarding accessing pain medication how has that impacted the the work that you're doing and what are you finding people are telling you about that and how they um, how they're experiencing those changes so i guess a background for listeners is um on june 1st there was a new regulation that came out that was only supposed to impact um acute pain so like if you go to a hospital and you get surgery or you break your leg and they discharge you you get half of what you used to get um, and these people are people that apparently have never experienced pain before or they're just getting treatment for an acute issue. Um, so instead of getting 20 tablets of a certain medication, you'd get 10. However, there's been a lot of challenges around uh, S8 or opiate medications or painkillers. Um, and so in the past, doctors have actually received letters from the health minister, Greg Hunt, to say you've prescribed too much or and there's so much angst and stress around prescribing painkillers that this new additional regulation is just another message to prescribers out there that this is not okay and all opiates are bad and you should stop prescribing them essentially. So it's heightened the fear within the medical community and that in turn is impacting people living with chronic pain because a lot of doctors are like, okay, there's another message about how I should stop or, or this is not okay. So a lot of doctors have actually just went, you know what? I don't want to have anything to do with painkillers. I'm just going to stop prescribing it. Or um, they'll be like, um, before I prescribe something to you, you have to go see a pain specialist. And I don't know if anybody's seen a specialist before, but it's not that easy. It takes months in a waiting mm. list situation or it's super duper expensive. It's two, three, dollars $400 for a 20 minute consult. So more additional barriers. Unfortunately, a lot of people within our community have been forced tapered, which 
means forced to stop taking their medication because they don't have access or force reduction, um, which is also not a good thing. Um, so people are struggling quite significantly because they're dealing with COVID. So this is happening in the middle of COVID. So people's mental health are clearly impacted. They're already dealing with all of the things that they have already deal dealt with. And then you add this on top and they're afraid to go to the GP um, because they're afraid the GP is going to stop their medications. So a lot of people in our community have that fear or they've already, that's already happened to them and they're struggling to get by because they have no pain relief and they have no quality of life. So there have been suicides within our community. There have been contemplations of suicide. There have been a lot of heartbreaking stories that I personally cannot fathom because the law is not on the side of the doctor doing this. It's, it's not like if you read the regulations properly, it wasn't supposed to be this way. But unfortunately, with the constant hammering of the messages of painkillers are bad and that, you know, this is what happens because if you take them, then they're not good for you and they don't work, et cetera, et cetera. There's so much misconception around that, that obviously people that are in, that have chronic pain are struggling um, to get access because of that stigma. Um, we recently had the um, Royal Commission hearings on the impact of COVID yes. um, on people with disabilities and you've touched on it a little bit already but I just wanted to kind of ask what's what have you noticed both personally but also kind of in your work during kind of the pandemic? Um, well obviously uh, with the Royal Commission um, the pretty big sentiment that came out of that is we have been completely forgotten about and all of the decisions were made without people with disabilities in mind at all. Um, it, I think, I mean, obviously all of that with within the disability space, within the chronic pain space, you know, they didn't take into consideration how disadvantaged we already are. And then you make all of these additional barriers. It, it, it clearly shows how forgotten about we are. It clearly shows how that isn't taken. But it clearly shows there's just no representation. There's no representation on any of these boards or any of these policy groups or meeting groups or working groups making these decisions. That's why you forget about us because we're not in the room. Um, and then you make these decisions that affect us. In relation to the Royal Commission, um, I had a debrief forum with uh, Senator um, Jordan John Steele, as well as Nicole Lee, um, who's mm -hmm. a, a victim mm -hmm. survivor advocate. So and just to debrief the Royal Commission, we talked about these exact things about how we've been forgotten about how we're in the height of a pandemic where people are already on thin ice. They're trying to keep their head above water and then you just keep throwing more and more and more and more at them. And you wonder why suicides are happening. You wonder why there's so much stress and angst in, within our communities. And then you kind of tell us, oh, well, you know, we didn't take that consideration. That's, that's millions of people you're talking about that you've just forgotten. And I guess we're myself personally with my disability justice work, but also the work with Chronic Pain Australia, but just my advocacy work in general is to talk about and work through these things. We're trying to just band together and make our voices heard as best we can, even if we have to shout it from the rooftops. Mm -hmm. um, because things need to change and things have always needed to change. This is before COVID happened. You know, we've, we've known that we've been an afterthought before COVID happened. Um, and then COVID happened is just further exacerbating and making more prevalent how big of an issue this is. Naomi, I know you're also covering the Royal Commission hearings um, mm. and kind of live tweeting stuff out for people with disability Australia. Kind of what were yeah. your thoughts? Oh gosh, really similar. Like there was a real definite vibe that we've been forgotten and there was a definite, um, 
the the one that really got me upset was when they were they were talking about how their their response in terms of actually slowing down COVID had not incorporated people with disabilities because they felt that we were at the same risk of catching COVID, therefore, and at the same risk of recovering from COVID. So they thought that the general advice could apply to all of us. And of course that doesn't work because we can't necessarily isolate the same way as other people, you know, which puts yeah. us at higher risk. We can't necessarily take all the same precautions as, as the general populations. So there was a real sense of, Oh my gosh, they've just completely miscalculated um, what, what the risk here because they've just reduced it down to medical risk as opposed mm -hmm. to looking at people with disabilities holistically, um, which is, yeah, I mean, again, it's it's exactly like like you said. It's it's not being at the table. Um, we've sort of been screaming about this for a long time now. I've I've been like you. I've been part of the disability community for a long time and and talking about these issues. But it just feels often like nothing changes. And maybe this is the moment. Maybe this was the moment where they'll say, "Oh, that was you know this royal commission is happening. These things are coming to light. At least these things are being talked about now. This is this is progress." But, you know, we'll, we'll see, I guess, in the next sort of months and, and years ahead what, what difference that actually makes. Yeah. Uh, one thing I actually wanted to ask, in terms of um, chronic pain, I was reading an, an interview with you where you were talking about how your, your pain was dismissed as, as women's issues at an early yeah. stage. Is that, um, how have you found, in, in your position, talking to people of different genders, what the impact of that has, has been on treatment? Um. So, I mean, it's really hard because there's a, I mean, there's a lot of, I guess, statistics and data out there that chronic pain um, or chronic illness is a gendered issue. Um, mm. I think that's not necessarily the case. It's just because mm. men, I guess, in general, aren't encouraged to talk about their, their pain and their illness. I'm sure there's plenty of men out there or people who identify as men who, um, who are going through pain and who are having all of these conditions, but they just don't talk about it. So they're not captured within those statistics. Um, however, mm. in saying that women um, are often dismissed um, and that can be evidenced just by talking about endometriosis, for example, that takes at least a decade to be diagnosed because constantly people are just saying and brushing it off and saying, you know, it's just, it's just a painful period. You'll be fine when really they're bleeding internally in places they shouldn't be bleeding. And obviously are in excruciating pain because of that. Um, it's very, very, very common. Um, it's a very common story for a lot of um, women with chronic illnesses to have the doctors told me it was just period pain or uh, you know, or back pain related to that. And then when that wasn't an issue, it was stress and anxiety and it was all psychosomatic and women are hysterical, um, which is obviously a long history around that. Um, and so getting dismissed is such a common theme for women, such a common theme um, for pain to not be believed, um, which is really disappointing. So for me, um, I had like pretty a pain that I couldn't really ignore from about eight, nine-ish. Um, and then when I was about 10, 11, 12, it was all like, oh, it's just, you know, you're growing pains. It's just period pain. It's just, you know, you'll get over it. Um, and then not until like 14 or 15, they were like, oh, maybe it's real. And it's not just depression and anxiety. And it turned out um, I had 
a spinal herniation and spinal cord compression and and a bunch of them. So for years I was suffering because the doctor just didn't want to take me serious. Doctors didn't want to take me seriously and just blamed it on women's issues. Um, and that is such a common thing for lots of women, particularly young women, um, uh, which it, obviously we're trying to work to advocate for as well. Um, but it's just so ingrained sometimes and there's so much medical bias and there's so much, and then you add, if you add culture, um, if you add people of colour, if you add, if you're LGBTIQ, you add any of these other intersections and it makes it even more difficult because it's like, I mean, if you're LGBTI and you're a teenager, it's probably just the stress and anxiety of that or, right, um, yeah. you know, or, or, or you know, in, 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 say, like Asian culture with me, like talking about pain and mental health and all of that is just a big no-no. It's so taboo. And then, so when you do talk about it, it's like, oh, are you just making a big deal out of it? It's, or you don't talk about it at all until it gets so bad. But then when you finally do talk about it and your doctor doesn't believe you, then you stop talking about it and you just suffer in silence. Mm. And there's so many layers and intersections and you add all of these extra things and um, it makes it even more difficult to be believed and makes it even more difficult to get help. Do you feel like there's also added kind of systemic barriers um, for people that are from culturally diverse backgrounds? Uh, definitely. I think, um, I think we, I mean, obviously based on my own experience, mm -hmm. we're taught to internalize literally everything and just get over it. Um, my parents were refugees from the Vietnam war. They literally came to Australia on a boat. Mm -hmm. So obviously, um, I guess it's different cause I was born quite unwell, but if I had mental health issues or if I was feeling stressed or anxious or depressed, um, they just tell me to get over it because I'm not living on the street of Vietnam begging. I have a roof over my head and I'm educated. Um, so I literally have nothing to worry about. So that's a very, 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 very common theme, particularly from refugee and migrant backgrounds, because life in Australia is magical. Um, and even if things are stressful, there's nothing to be sad or depressed or anxious about because you're not on the street of a war-torn country. So that was the sentiment that I grew up with. So um, it does make it more difficult. Um, particularly if your parents have gone through that trauma and, and you know, obviously no fault of their own, they've just gone through this war and they've come here and, you know, Australia is magical in their eyes, but it doesn't mean that what you're going through um, individually with your stress and anxiety and depression is not valid. And I think um, it's quite difficult when there's so much intergenerational trauma as a result of being a migrant or, or particularly a refugee. Um, so I mean, that's a quite a complex topic to talk about, mm -hmm. but um, it is, and it does add more barriers because my parents can't or don't speak very much English. So growing up, I was their interpreter and you say, oh, why don't you just hire an interpreter? It's because I just don't understand why, but um, there's different dialects of Vietnamese, there's different mm -hmm. dialects and they, keep, they kept hiring someone who didn't speak the same dialect. So they might as well have just hired someone who spoke German for like all it mattered. Um, so they just got to the point where they didn't even understand the interpreter. So it was getting quite difficult. So I just had to keep interpreting. And I continue to do that even in situations where they would like, hey, you've got a tumour you need to remove from your throat. Or, hey, you need to get this spinal surgery. And I was so worried about interpreting for them and making them understand and catering for their feelings. Um, I just became even more invisible in the process. So some, from about 13, I just 
started attending appointments on my own. Mm. I'd catch the bus, wow. two or three buses sometimes on my own to go to these appointments because what was the point of having them there if it was going to make it more stressful for me? Mm. Um, I moved out of home when I was 15 or 16 um, because of other issues relating to the stress associated with that. Um, and I just need to, for my own safety and my own sake, um, which obviously made things more difficult for me. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there with chronic illnesses and disabilities that have family um, which and support systems that I'm sure have been helpful for them. Um, but yes, so uh, yeah, definitely challenging from a migrant refugee background um, because of all the things that I've just mentioned, which can be quite complex. I also feel like there's these experiences or these voices also aren't heard enough in the disability kind of advocacy area. Mm, I agree with that. Um, I mean, obviously there's a lot of, thankfully, disability representation within the disability space, and mm. but there's not a lot of people of colour mm. or migrant refugee representation. There's not that much LGBTI representation based on, I guess, what I can see. Um, and all of those things add barriers. And then if you're LGBTI and you are um, a person of colour and then you add all these other barriers, uh, not barriers, um, all these other additional intersections, um, those voices matter because that obviously impacts a lot of the, the community as well. And I think that representation is very important, which is also one of my missions in my role is to increase that space. I, for example, am... In all the boards that I'm on, I'm, I'm the youngest, I'm the only LGBTI person, I'm also the only person of colour. It, it's just like I'm literally the only non-white person there um, in, in often many rooms, which is quite daunting in itself, but I do and I'm striving to increase um, representation in the best way that I can and the best way that I know how is to just be able to connect and do more interviews with the media and um, try to... I guess, connect with more um, contacts and try to increase that awareness so that people like me um, know that it's okay to speak up about that. And I think growing up, I never really had that because mm. we never really talked about it and I never really saw that representation. I mean, obviously, there's, there was, I mean, back in the 90s and 80s, there wasn't that much representation in the disability sector. Great, there is now, but there's still not that much diversity um, mm. in, in, in the sense of other aspects of who we are as people. I guess one of the things that's been drawing attention during kind of COVID-19 is um, mental health and community mental health and people kind of struggling with that. Um, and you've spoken about this a little bit, but um, people with chronic pain also experience mental health challenges as well, um, which may be even more exacerbated at the moment kind of mm -hmm. with COVID-19 on top of all that. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the link between, you know, chronic pain and then also kind of mental health? There are very strong links. Um, there are like it's two or three or four times more likely to have mental health issues because of chronic pain. That's like that's a sign. I don't know the exact fact, but there's a there's a exacerbated increase or likelihood of having mental health issues um, for people living with chronic pain. I'll find that statistic and I'll send it to you later. Mm -hmm. um, but um, <clears throat> but yeah, so uh, chronic pain is so complex. Like there's so many layers and barriers. It's not a medical issue. It's not just a medical issue. It mm -hmm. impacts your home life. It impacts your relationships. It impacts 
your employment life, it impacts your sex life, it literally impacts every aspect of who we are as human beings. Um, and for a doctor to treat it as a medical issue is doing, like not doing it justice is, um, it is not a disability in itself, like as in chronic pain is a condition, um, which it should be because it's so disabling in so many ways. Obviously there's different extents of chronic pain, but there's very, there are chronic pain conditions and there are people that live with chronic pain that is disabling them. And, and it, and even if it doesn't, um, it impacts so much of our lives and it is unrelenting at times. And the worst thing is it's invisible. It's an invisible condition. It's an invisible disability. And so it's so hard for people to understand what you're going through. It's so hard to talk to your employer when you look completely fine and you're asking mm -hmm. for disability adjustments or disability support. So um, that mental health aspect is just further exacerbated by the fact that you're going through this. You're going through it essentially alone because it, no one can tell what you're going through mm -hmm. because you might look perfectly fine on the outside. And then you try to, if you do try to get support, no one believes you because mm -hmm. you look perfectly fine. No wonder uh, mental health and just like is so common within the chronic pain community because that's a lot to go through for any human being like mm -hmm. sheesh um <laughs> but so often it gets just reduced to the problem is in the person without looking yeah. at all those systemic things and what the what impact the lack of access to medications and support <laughs> services and you know medical specialists and things has on someone's mental health yeah Definitely. And then this is all before COVID. So you had COVID, you had the lockdown, particularly if you're in Melbourne, and it's a perfect storm. Mm. What, one thing that I've sort of um, just like as part of my work, I've been focused on the DSP and the, uh, the tables um, that you need to uh, for, So for anyone at home, when you apply for the DSP, you need to be able to tick certain boxes in the in the tables that they've created. And there were changes to those tables made in 2012, I think, that meant that a lot of people specifically with chronic pain issues uh, ended up getting kicked off the DSP and um, on, at the time, Newstart. Is that something um, that you've been dealing with in your work, trying to help people get that support um, within those... Um, within those rules? Not directly. So I guess from a chronic, chronic pain Australia perspective, we are a systemic advocacy organisation. So we don't do a lot of, we don't do any one-on-one -on -one sort of stuff. We try to obviously do like the overall systemic changes. Um, but we do have a lot from our community that talk about, I mean, that talk about challenges with support and DSP and Centrelink and all of those barriers. Uh, all those stresses of trying to navigate this extremely complex system to get the support. Um, but just overall in my work in the disability space, yes, it's ridiculous how hard it is to get DSP. And then there's all these additional um, barriers with the, uh, as in to, to ensuring you stay on the DSP or maintaining your status of the DSP. And with these changes, um, it obviously has made it even more difficult, but then you think about DSP and if you have a relationship or you're, and you're partnered, that also infects your ability to get DSP. Um, mm. And then obviously you're bumped onto Newstart or JobKeeper or whatever they're calling it now. Um, but as soon as, so there's so many people that I know that should be on DSP, but they can't because they are in a relationship and, and 
and that's effectively halved their income, if that makes any sense. And yeah, we're, we're, so we're, it reduces based on your partner's income rather than yes. just your own income. Yeah. But we're always, 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 always talking about independence. We're always talking about people with disabilities, disabled people need independence. We want them to be independent beings. We want them to live their lives as independently as they like. And then as soon as you enter any sort of relationship, you're relying on your partner's income. Like it makes zero sense. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, literally, it's literally, and and then you think about financial abuse, you think about family violence situations, you think about situations where you are now so disadvantaged and vulnerable to that person. If anything goes wrong in that relationship, there you're relying on them for, for living now because you can't get DSP as an independent person because you're now in a relationship, which literally goes against anything and everything we've ever encouraged people with disabilities to be it makes zero sense. And, and then you wonder why financial abuse happens. You wonder why people don't leave um, when they're in those situations because they're literally relying on them for now finances and, and um, they're stuck. Mm. And, and essentially the, the system that the government's put in place surrounding this has made them stuck. That was Arquino, Disability Advocate and Executive Director at Chronic Pain Australia. If you would like support following this conversation, you can call Lifeline on 131114. If you are currently experiencing family violence and are in need of support, you can call 1800RESPECT, or you could call Switchboard on 1800 184 527, which is a support service for the LGBTIQA community. You can listen to all of our podcasts via the 3CR website and also via iTunes, so check that out. Um, I want to thank Aki for being part of the show and also thank you for listening.